You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Thank you very much, uh, Jennifer, and of course, thank you to uh, Colleen and uh, to David Danaher, who initiated this invitation to uh, medicine. So indeed, some of us, for some of us, this talk is uh, particularly interesting because we heard some early installments of research yes. presented yes. at graduate student conferences here and at uh, uh, national graduate, uh, not graduate, but national conferences uh, in other places uh, from Colleen's uh, work in progress. And today we have Colleen with us because uh, her book uh, that is entitled uh, Love for Sale, Representing Prostitution in Imperial Russia, came out um, last year from Cornell University Press, which is an expansion and reversion of her uh, uh, doctoral dissertation. Colleen uh, was a graduate student here from I don't know when till 2016, as we all. Um, uh, we were at the same time. 2009. Oh, okay. Which means I can see that. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My voice is not as loud as um, the <laughs> speaker. So 2009 through 2016, and she has been working at the University of Arizona since 2015. So even before. Um, um, uh, so she's an assistant professor at the University of Arizona. And just let me read uh, a couple of words about the book. Love for Sale examines how a variety of writers and their contemporaries working in the visual arts utilize the theme of prostitution to tackle issues of public hygiene, fidelity, and the commodification of sex. As Russians eagerly discuss the legalization of prostitution in the 1840s, they witnessed the debate expanding beyond the realm of the brothel to include other types of transactional relations haunting the institution of the family, studying a wide range of media from little-known engravings that circulated in newspapers to works of canonical fiction, love for sale shows how the topic of commercial sex came to signify broad fears about women's entry into the marketplace as both consumers and objects of consumption. So I'm sure that you will order the book uh, yeah. the next thing after, after you, <laughs> you, um, uh, you, you um, finish uh, today's presentation. But in the meantime, uh, today's talk uh, that is related to the book is called Thrifty Businesswoman or Exploiter Extraordinaire. The Madame in 19th century Russian literature. Russia, not literature, Russia. Uh, so please. Uh, Professor Shimalenko, thank you very much for the kind introduction. I'm sorry for my, you know, comments from the peanut gallery. I should really, you know, behave myself at my alma mater. You know, they invited me back. Um, so uh, it's really a pleasure to be back here at my alma mater um, to visit with the current grads, to reconnect with the faculty here, to meet with especially the graduate students, to hear the wonderful work that they're doing. Um, you know, this is a difficult time to be in our field. It's a really difficult time, and I just want to, uh, you know, begin my talk by just saying that, and just reminding us all that the work that you're doing here, the work that you're doing with your professors, really does matter. 
But we do, I mean, we see it now mattering more than ever. Um, so I also want to thank Professor Danaher and the Slavic faculty in GNS for inviting me back and the amazing staff at Krika, um, particularly Jennifer Tischler, Sarah Linkard, and Courtney Johnson, um, and all of you for being here today to, to, to be part of uh, what what was a long, prog long process that Dr. Professor Shimelenko mentioned. It started out as a, uh, a project, as a course paper with Professor Alexander Dalinen, and then developed into a larger thesis project, and then uh, after I defended, considerably revised uh, for, uh, for a book manuscript. So it's seen different stages, and you may have, professors may have read parts of this or seen me present at different, different aspects of the book. So I'm very happy to, to talk today about what I think is a very maligned uh, image in Russian uh, fiction and fine arts, but not just Russian, European art more generally. And so my talk today focuses on a, two character types that appear as minor figures. Can you hear me okay? Is this also too, okay. Two minor figures, but nevertheless important ones in Russian fiction and fine art of the 19th century. That is the madam and the procuress. <laughs> so such female go-betweens are found in works by Fyodor Dostoevsky, Lev Tolstoy, Nikolai Leskov, Alexander Kuprin, among many others. And the Madam also appears in well-known genre paintings by Pavel Fedotov and Nikolai Schilder. Although the Madam's profession was technically legal uh, under the imperial system of state-regulated prostitution, widely known in the Russian context as Nadzor, she, along with her counterpart working illegally, the procuress or Svodnya, garnered near universal hatred. <laughs> Both state authorities and the medical police pointed to the madam as the exploitative overlord who abused the women in their charge. It was not the medical police that was to blame for the wide rampant uh, syphilis, rates of syphilis among brothel workers. In fact, it was the madam who was to blame for that. Even as they pointed to the madam as the cause of the problems in the state system of regulation, they begrudgingly acknowledged her crucial role in keeping the system of regulation afloat. As the first line of defense against the transmission of venereal diseases, so STDs, the madam provided a necessary service to public health. But because she profited from the trade of sex and her, held considerable power over the women in her charge, she was almost universally considered as a heinous manifestation of a capitalist entrepreneur. So there's instances in which she is likened to, for instance, a plantation owner who takes her slaves and uses them and abuses them and then spits them out uh, to lower level brothels, for example. Even more dangerous to the social fabric was the procurist, Svodnya, who brokered sex illegally outside the system of Nadzor. Compounding attacks on madams and procuresses by the medical police uh, were the stereotypes upheld by writers and journalists, all of whom pointed to the go-between as the premier source of women's downfall at entry into the commercial sex trade. Typical in this regard is an 1866 pamphlet uh, that describes madams as social parasites, female pariahs, or my favorite, hyenas in bonnets. So I'll quote for you. So the jazziness of public женщин это как их справедливо называют гениев чепчики. Они смотрят на себе подобных женщин только как на вещи, могущие им приносить доход. Кроме желания, каким бы это ни было образом, увеличить свой капитал, в них никакого человеческого чувства не существует. Для этого они не пощадят ни молодости, ни неопытности, не пощадят ни дочери, ни сестры. Святого для них нет ничего. So they have no other feeling than the increase 
on their capital. In the pursuit of this goal, they will pity neither youth nor inexperience, neither their daughters or sister. They hold absolutely nothing sacred, explains the author, because they see women as commodities that can bring in money. Portrayed as far more heinous than the men who frequent brothels, of them we hear very little, the madam and the procurus loom in literature and fine art as wanton and depraved women who go against God and most particularly what I'm interested in, in the, the, their gender, they go against their gender in the pursuit of money. So my research, as uh, uh, Professor Shivalenko kindly mentioned, uh, uh, appears in my recent book, Love for Sale, Representing Prostitution in Imperial Russia, which is on sale. And if you can't sell your own book, what can you sell? So, um, so they taught me well at my alma mater, right? So, uh, so as you see, you know, the, the book catalogs the different ways that commercial sex registered amongst the intelligentsia. And I'm really working with an intelligentsia in the book. Um, because whether directly or, as I also argue, allegorically, works of print and visual culture turn to prostitution to identify, to explain, and most often to control transgressive women, including sex workers, who operate outside the lines of patrilineal exchange. The copious pages and canvases devoted to the fallen woman motif convey a fascination with non-reproductive sex and a need to sublimate the sexual otherness of such female figures through plots or images that contain them in death or in rehabilitation or uh, in the physical negation of the sex worker's body. As I show in the book, Russia's literary and visual culture focus on the shifting economies of desire founded on transaction. As commentators grappled with the rise in prostitution in Russia's major cities, they found themselves confronting both the exploitative aspects of prostitution, undergirding Nadzor, while simultaneously cataloging the emancipatory possibilities of sex for hire among the elite. Love for Sale thus argues that writers and artists use the image of economic exchange, including fiscally informed narratives, the mercantile logic of Christian salvation, and the representation of women as consumers and also objects of consumption, to describe an emerging erotic speciation that defied traditional understandings of love and fidelity and exploited the intelligentsia's perceptions and exploded them simultaneously, of presuming where commercial sex should take place, with whom, and at what cost. And in today's presentation, I'm going to focus on the linchpin of the commercial sex trade, the female go-between. And my analysis will show the different meanings writers and artists ascribe to the madam who practiced her, her trade legally in Imperial Russia and the procuress, a woman who operated outside the law. With near unanimous agreement, the category of the go-between, which I used to uh, include both procuresses and madams, elicited condemnation not only among writers and artists, but medical practitioners, social theorists, cultural commentators, early sociologists. Yet historians of Imperial Russia have shown that the experience of brothel madams working under the state system of administrative supervision was far more complex than represented in literature and art of the period. While by no means universally loved among the women in their charge, neither were they the objects of ubiquitous hatred as portrayed in works of the period. As Lori Bernstein has explained in Sonia's Daughters, prostitution and their Prostitutes and Their Regulation in Imperial Russia, while madams could and did abuse and blackmail their employees, women working in the brothel identified foremost with their madam far more so than the male authorities who intervened on their behalf. 
And more recently, Siobhan Hearn has shown that Madams navigated a complex bureaucratic system that placed excessive laws and regulations on their business. She writes, quote, that the rules of regulation position Madams as guardians of public health and morality. This, combined with their close ties to law enforcement, gave them an elevated status within the lower orders of urban society, which bred resentment and contributed to negative portrayals and popular discourse. Hearn illustrates the, the two-sided nature of regulation. So madams exploited women in their care, but they themselves were also exploited and set up to fail, given the way that regulation charged them with extraneous duties. As in factories, explains Hearn, brothels had strict regulations imposed from above that offered workers little agency and saddled employers with paternalistic responsibilities, which in turn reinforced a strictly hierarchical power relationship between the two groups. Comparing the historical reality with the representation uh, in print and visual culture tells us something vital about the conceptualization of female brokers of commercial sex. The near universal image of the go-between as old, physic, uh, phys as physically repulsive, often a foreigner, and usually ethnically other, particularly as Jewish, is not historically representative of the majority of brothel owners in the empire. Rather, I argue that such women appear in fiction and art as a repository for social anxieties about women who acquire significant capital and social importance through their facilitation of commercial sex. My presentation today is going to explore the ways writers and artists amplified such fears through various works aimed at imagining the procurus and madam as socially and sexually appalling. So if in previous talks I've shown you, you know, vivacious images of, of you know, scantily clad women, meaning like a, an ankle was shown, um, today <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be talking more about images of, that, that evoke folkloric witch or like, uh, you know, figures that you're not supposed to um, be attracted to. By creating such uniform condemnations of the women who broker sex, cultural commentators could remove the stigma from clients, pimps, and other third parties to point the finger at the women who sell other women. By portraying madams and procuruses as old, gluttonous, scheming crones, Russia's cultural producers could confirm that women who entered the commercial sex trade did so not of their own volition, but through the intervention of such hyenas and bonnets, who tricked poor girls into life of prostitution. Medical police, jurists, writers, artists, all pointed to the madam as the premier driver and facilitator of Russian prostitution, all but eclipsing questions of sex workers' individual agency. Um, given the ubiquity and steadfastness of this archetype, it's all the more perplexing that a writer, little known outside of Russia, but important to Russian writers of the period, Nikolai Leskov, would create in the 1860s a highly unorthodox image of a go-between in his novella titled The Battle, a the Battle Axe, It's So towards the end of my presentation, after I've shown you all of the negative images that existed of procuruses in the period, we're gonna then switch over to a, uh, an example of something more dynamic, problematic, interesting, complex in this, uh, in this novella by Leskov called The Battle Axe. So both the madam and the procurus appear in highly negative terms. Genre painters of the period were eager to point out social inequalities and match their writers of the period on par in terms of how they could point to social critique. The go-between appears in visual culture as a key figure in the exploitation of women. In this line of thinking, the procurus and madam orchestrated a woman's fall. 
into sexual servitude and acted as the devil's handmaiden by tempting an unassuming, impoverished girl into prostitution. Usually a girl who has traveled to the metropole and is either subsidizing her income through sewing work or some other low-paying wage. So Pavel Fedotov uh, quantifies this and codifies this image of an elderly woman ready to capitalize on the poverty of a young, attractive girl in the 1846 sepia drawing Now Fedotov's famous sepia drawing shows an impoverished seamstress whose bedridden mother can do nothing as a go-between suggestively points to the male figure anxiously waiting in the wings. Now, while it's easy to assume here that the woman is a procurist, Fedotov's drawing is, is leaving open an ambiguity given that madams could also attract new recruits to the brothel through such quid pro quo arrangements. Now, the, mas the mousetrap makes clear that the mother's inevitable death, and we see her in the, the back of the, of the painting, uh, makes, makes way or makes clear that this death opens up the possibility for a second predatory maternal figure to take her place. So in ways similar to what Jenny Kaminer describes in her study of the image of the bad mother in Russian literature, both the madam and the procurus signify a violation of the code of moral and social ethics because such women place their self-interest, and particularly their own interest in profit, above the needs of their female wards. Like other maternal figures who violate the sanctity of the family unit, women who broker sex threaten traditional social norms by disrupting this image of the eternal, loving, self-sacrificing mother that is upheld both in religious and secular literature. And authorities for themselves also affirm these social biases by precluding madams from raising a family inside the brothel. Images from this period amplify the bad mother theme by stressing go-betweens as these conniving tricksters who strike when women are left with, with maternal, without maternal or paternal oversight. So conventional thought that a woman without a husband or a paternal figure of some sort to protect them left women more easily swayed by the temptation of sin. So we can also see there's like a paternalistic overtone in these, in these kinds of images. Now Nikolai Schilder codified this paradigm in his 1857 painting, The Temptation, Iskushenya. Like Fudotov had before him, Schilder underscores the depravity of the go-between by contrasting her to the sickly mother who's laying ill in the corner. Now, Schilder's painting alludes to Fedota's work both through composition and indirect reference to the theme of a mousetrap, with the inclusion of a cat poised in the, uh, in the lower right-hand corner. It wouldn't be me if I had at least one cat uh, image in, 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 in the presentation. Okay, so, now, okay. the daughter must choose whether to accept the offer of a gold bracelet, which is, you know, the, the, the madam or the procurator is, is, is suggestively holding out to her, uh, presumably given on behalf of a potential lover, or remain penniless, haunched over this, you know, these mounds of embroidery that, that won't give her enough, uh, in, or no, garner enough salary to sustain herself and her sick mother. Now, most likely the procurus here is also suggestively pointing to the corridor, um, suggesting that there is a barely visible male figure there who's eagerly awaiting the girl's decision, also evocative of Fedota's painting. But to heighten the, the, the painting's moral imperative, Schilder contrasts the central figure with her look of shock and dismay to the go-between's predatory gaze. Built on the dichotomies of youth and old age, health and illness, purity and vice, the painting squeezes the three female figures into the space of a tiny apartment to underscore the suffocating pressure weighing on the young woman's soul. 
The color scheme likewise conveys a deeper meaning to the displayed figures. Both the woman and her mother appear in white to symbolize their inner purity. By way of contrast, the go-between appears in darker attire wrapped in black, brown, and dark gray. A closer look at the bonnet with its delicate white lace and burst of pink lining and bow contrasts sharply with these masculine features of her face. The incongruity of the matronly cap and the go-between's masculine features, small lips, and long nose is meant to convey her disharmonious character, which is further amplified by her physical resemblance to a witch. <laughs> Shoulder takes care to show that the viewer alone is privy to the young woman's plight. So neither the sick mother, um, nor as you can see it here, the icon in the upper corner, which is partially hidden from view, offer her protection from the go-between. Schilder heightens this dramatic effect by making the go-between's temptation a paramount decision in the young woman's life and in the life of her family. So in this context, the golden bracelet the Procurus is extending symbolizes more than a payment. It is also functioning as a metaphor for the impending shackles of brothel life. If the woman accepts a gift, she'll be beholden not only to the man, but to this go-between, who will have power to barter and exchange the woman's favors as she wishes, or so we assume. So the painting links into this, this distrust of go-betweens by showcasing the woman here as integral into the demise of the woman. So the antagonism towards madams and procuruses was far stronger than other women who defied traditional norms of motherhood. Studies of prostitution, whether they were conducted by early sociologists or established fiction writers, use the traditional gender binary to affirm the madam's monstrosity, for she goes against her supposed natural maternal instincts. We look to the early sociologist Serafim Shashkov, who, uh, who writes the following about the madam. Она приобретает невинных девушек и продает их. Она скупает женское тело на процессионных ярмарках Гамбурга и Рига оптом. А в России рознична. Она вместе с палачом и шпионом составляет самую отвратительную триаду, созданную ненормальными условиями социального быта. So acquiring virgin and selling them. Uh, she buys up female bodies as pro at prostitution markets in Hamburg and Riga and wholesale and for cheap in Russia. Right in, in a similar vein, Mikhail Kuznetsov, one of the first medical specialists to study the phenomenon of prostitution in Russia, could declare in the 1870 issue of Archiv that madams, quote, ruthlessly robbed their victims of, the innocence, of their innocence and made them into slaves, end of quote. Such fears culminated at the turn of the 20th century in anti-Semitic discourse that placed, Jew that placed Jews at the center of a quote-unquote white slave uh, trade panic. Believing that madams and procuresses used their connections to traffic women in and out of Russia, commentators warned of a Jewish underground criminal network that stretched beyond the country's borders. Typical in this regard is Alexander Kuprin's depiction of the Jewish brothel owner Anna Markovna Shoibs in his novel, The Pit, Yama. Kuprin depicts, novel, depicts the brothel life in as much detail as possible, including the clandestine activities of Anna Markovna. She's described as small in stature and dumpy, and she bribes the local authorities, keeps her workers in check by beating them if necessary, and she inspires this general disgust even in those characters with little more than an ounce of conscience. Together with her second-in-command, Emma Edvardovna, Anna Markovna keeps the brothel workers under tight control by charging them exorbitant rates for lodging, clothing, and food. 
The anti-Semitism of the novel is compounded in the second portion in which Couperin uh, offers a condemnatory picture of a Jewish sex trafficker named Gorizon who tricks naive girls into marrying him only to sell them to brothel owners. So Julie Cassidy and Leila Rohi have shown in an article about the Russian procurist how the pit demonizes individuals who profit from the sale of young Russian Orthodox girls really by establishing or drawing upon stereotypes of Jews as physically repulsive and morally depraved. So as Couperin's portrait demonstrates, there was more to the representation of madams than indignation at a woman's profiting from commercial sex. <clears throat> Driving condemnations of Russia's hyenas and bonnets was a general disgust of women who acquired social and financial capital by facilitating non-reproductive sexual exchanges. By pointing to mercenary women who uh, broker transaction, trans transactional sex, literary and visual culture could shift blame away from the pimps and the clients and the state system of regulation and focus rather on the women who facilitated sex work and profited from the trade. While historiography of the period contends that the cases of abuse against prostitutes by madams were significant, studies also show the complexities of the madam's social role in late imperial Russia. So Lori Bernstein, for example, describes how a madam, quote, had to be more than a mere landlady. She had to restrain the women in her charge from abusing alcohol, to demand that they remain tidy. She had to restrain the women in different ways and observe that they followed the regulations about modestly, uh, modestly applying makeup and their personal hygiene." End of quote. The procurist was to, the madam was to take full responsibility of her wards, checking their bodies weekly for signs of venereal disease, paying for their hospital stays if necessary, and answering to the police, the police on their behalf. Any repercussions, any breaking of these laws uh, would elicit quick repercussions and harsh uh, responses, possible imprisonment for the madams. When the authorities doubled the number of regulations in 1861, they claimed that these new policies were needed to curtail the abuses of madams toward their employees. However, these requirements did little, if anything, to better the lives of Russian sex workers. Rather, the bureaucratic measures aimed at controlling sex workers and madams. Moreover, the new legal code limited the age category for madams to operate brothels, whereas in the original codex, uh, women aged 30 to 60 could run establishments. In 1861, the age increased from 35 and lowered the maximum to 55. Now, although women as young as 35 could run brothels, you do not see an image of a 35-year-old running a brothel in literature and fine art from the period. That does not exist. If it does, I'd like to know and, and rewrite my book. Now, uh, the ma so the majority of literary and artistic represent representations see them as old, as gluttonous, as unattractive, as beyond first youth, as postmenopausal, and so forth. For example, the album of images from uh, lithographer Alexander Lebedev shows this portly older woman facilitating sexual transa transaction with a familiar client. Who says, you know, oh, but I'll be left with nothing, and she says, Oh, so what? Come with me and I'll treat you to an English woman. So also come out. In this way, by portraying madams as these kinds of this kind of other, Russia's cultural producers could confirm that women who entered the commercial sex trade did so not of their own volition, but through the intervention of such women who tricked poor girls into a life of prostitution. Sybil Krzysztofsky and his bestseller, The Slums of St. Petersburg, amplified charges waged against madams by focusing on the predatory lending practices. It was common for recent arrivals to the brothel to take out loans from their madams to pay for the dresses, jewelry, and other finery required to attract customers. 
Kristofsky in the slums of Petersburg explains that a madam, upon taking in a new charge, required that she sign a promissory note in exchange to purchase these items. According to Kristofsky, quote, if the girl refused to sign the agreement, and here we have another fun term, the shark auntie, Akula Tiotinka, <laughs> attempts to trick her through various terms of endearment and sickly sweet promises, assuring her that everyone does it this way that she should not be worse off than the others and that the loan means nothing because she can pay it back in increments over the course of several years." End of quote. By Kristofsky's calculation, however, a brothel worker can never manage to pay back her original debt because the madam takes three-fourths of the wages for overhead, for housing, and for food. Now, Kristofsky's assessment is true. Madams legally did have the right to take three-fourths of their wages from their women, the women in their charge. However, madams were also at the mercy of landlords who, given strict housing regulations, could charge exorbitant fees uh, in order for them to rent to because in, ter in terms of imperial law, the, a brothel had to be established only in certain areas within the city. So how uh, uh, charges could, could go up ex ex uh, to exorbitant levels. Simultaneously, madams also had to bribe uh, local authorities to keep their establishment up and running. So Kristolsky's depiction, while at times accurate, is nevertheless relies on a homogenized, monolithic image of the madam as tyrant, which is what we would expect from uh, this kind of work. As he explains, these, quote, despot antes were always in the right to punish an unfavorable girl with a slap or a punch. Like their counterparts in the visual arts, writers stress that madams used women's latent love of gold and finery to trap them in a life of sexual servitude. Such depictions affirm broader stereotypes of women as naturally weak in the face of temptation, helpless when tempted with a shiny bauble, unable to resist a luxurious mink coat, etc. Kristofsky's brothel madam offers a young recruit, for example, gold earrings, an expensive dress, and Bernice made of silk and velvet as pretext to get her to sign this necessary paperwork. A similar emphasis on women's weakness when offered luxury goods appears in Tolstoy's final novel, Resurrection, Voskresenia, which describes the unjust trial and sentencing of Katusha Maslova, a sex worker. Maslova makes the decision to join the brothel when a madam's emissary promises her that, quote, she can order any dresses she wants, velvet, satin, silk, ball gowns exposing her shoulders and arms, end of quote. And Maslova, picturing herself in such finery, surrenders her passport and is taken to the brothel. Tolstoy briefly depicts this madam, Karolina Albertovna Kitaeva, during Maslova's trial. Called to testify on Maslova's behalf, Kitaeva speaks well of her brothel employee, praising her for a strong background in French and the solid education she received in her youth. Like other depictions of go-betweens in the period, Kitaeva is a foreigner. She's a Russified German. But Tolstoy shows that the madam is not without compassion for her ward. Not only does she come to Maslova's defense, she sends money to her after the trial sentencing. And while Tolstoy shows only a glimpse of Kataeva in resurrection, it proves an interesting case in which an author shows a less caricatured depiction of the brothel madam. While Tolstoy's neutral, possibly even positive image of the madam breaks with typical representations of go-betweens, it does confirm to general conceptualizations of the bod as non-Russian. Imagining the madam or procurist as a European rather than a Russian helped authors buttress the belief that prostitution was imported to Russia from the libertine, morally depraved West. 
Never mind the prostitution existed in pre-Petrine Rus. In the 19th century literary imagination, transactional sex entered Russia through contact with European countries. As an example, the now forgotten but quite popular 19th century writer Pyotr Babarykin, a contemporary of Dostoevsky's, depicts a French madam in his novel Evening Sacrifice. When the story's narrator, Marie Mikhailovna, and her confidant, Lizaveta Petrovna, survey brothels in St. Petersburg to try and go and reform the women there, they come into contact with a madam who owns a high-end public house. And the madam says the following, if you heard stories about how madams steal from the girls, push them into debt, hold them against their will, it's all a lie, a sheer lie, she tells them. In fact, she says, thanks to her intervention, she has prevented her brothel employees from going into unnecessary debt. Everyone in St. Petersburg loves glamour. Oftentimes, I myself hold back my girls and refuse to allow them to spend frivolously on dresses. <coughs> Besides me, no one else will look after them." Quote. Both Maria Mikhailovna and Lizaveta Petrovna, who are on this kind of survey mission around St. Petersburg, touring the different brothels, find the madam's uh, statements, cynical justifications for the trade in sex. Babrikin codes the madam's Frenchness and her, uh, as another sign of her latent debauchery. Dostoevsky's images of go-between focus on the procurist as exploiter extraordinaire. In Crime and Punishment, the German Amalie Ivanovna Lippefiesel combines both the predatory characteristics of a conniving landlady and the exploitative behaviors of a procurist. So as the proprietress of the apartment where the Marmeladovs live, Amalie Ivanovna witnesses the decline of the family patriarch Marmeladov. She figures in the text as a willing participant in Sonia's turn to prostitution, even attempting to facilitate an arrangement with one of the city's procuresses, Daria Francevna. Described by the narrator as a woman with the most malicious intention, who is well known to the authorities, end of quote, Daria Francevna is eager to take Sonia under her wing. Although it is not Amelia Ivanovna who brokers Sonia's work as a prostitute, she facilitates it not only by bringing her to the attention of Daria Francevna, but by threatening Katerina Ivanovna, Sonia's stepmother, with eviction if they fail to pay for their family's apartment. With no other means at their disposal, Katerina Ivanovna berates Sonia to abandon her sense of pride and take to the streets. Amalia Ivanovna embodies a kind of banal evil that did not only condone debauchery, but helps facilitate it among her lodgers. Raskolnikov, himself no stranger to poverty and vice, enters Amalia Ivanovna's lodgings and is struck both by the flat's grimy furniture and this, uh, the most indecorous words coming from the rooms. A more shadowy and nefarious procurist is Svidrigailov's landlady, Gertrude Karlovna Reslik. If you don't remember these characters in Crime and Punishment, I mean, it's understandable they have like small entryways, small vignettes. But I'm focusing in on them to make a larger argument about the madam in, in, uh, in Dostoevsky's in the procurist in Dostoevsky's fiction. So Amelia Ivanovna and Madame Reislik are both of German birth. While the information on her is relayed through the unreliable illusion, Madame Reislik is believed to have prostituted her 15-year-old deaf-mute niece to Svidrigailov. The portrayal of Madame Reislik underscores her brutality, links her, and links her more, her moral licentiousness to her profession, money lending and her relationships with Ken. And the cruelty and sexual abuse Reislick's niece experiences pushes her to commit suicide. The go-betweens in crime, in crime and Punishment, I argue, offer a male character a scapegoat for their own crimes. So thus, the profligate Spidrick Garlov can voice his abhorrence at Madame Reislick and claim he was a passive participant in her evil intentions. He says, Madame Reislick was the one who cooked it all up for me. You're bored, she said. You must find some way to amuse yourself. 
And Svidrigailov insinuates that he is the innocent one. I don't do any harm, but I sit in a corner and sometimes I haven't a word to say for three days on end. He goes on to describe her to Raskolnikov as a tricky piece of work with her own ulterior motives. It is Madame Ryslik who brokers Svidrigailov's courtship to a child bride of 16. This is what she has in mind, explains Svidrigailov. I shall get tired of my wife and leave her, and my wife will fall into her hands and be put into circulation by her among our own class, that is, the higher ones. Motivated solely by greed, Madame Reislick operates as the antithesis of the ideal maternal figure. So while they are minor figures in Dostoevsky's fiction, Procuruses nevertheless appear as critical linchpins in the cultivation of vice. And in this regard, they're kind of a response to the, the evil, maniacal male figures that we see in, in, uh, in Dostoevsky's fiction. By having a female intermediary facilitate sexual debauchery, Dostoevsky's male villains could deflect the blame away from their own sexual improprieties, real or imagined, and onto the women who facilitated child prostitution. Reading works by Tolstoy, Babarikin, or Dostoevsky would lead us to believe that all madams were foreigners. Not so. The official empire-wide survey of prostitution con uh, conducted in 1889 held that a mere 6% of madams were German and 3% were Polish. Of the 1,214 registered brothel keepers, a quarter were Jewish, as opposed to 10% of the general population. So we see a, an overrepresentation of Jews in the management of prostitution, which is disproportionate to the representation in the, uh, in the population as a whole. This is also explained by the ways that Jews were forced into settlements within the, either beyond the pale or within particular areas of, of the metropole, which precluded them from other forms of work. Imagining the madam as a foreigner, though, could align her with broader anti-European sentiments that held Western forms of sexual exchange and contempt. Given the near ubiquity of deep-seated animosity towards go-betweens, it's now time to turn to an unorthodox image the one from Nikolai Leskov that I mentioned at the beginning of my talk. In the battle axe, Vaitsalnitsa, it stands out as a solitary example of a psychological, even comedic study of a procurist who remains charming despite her many shortcomings. She's ultra pragmatic in matters of the heart. She knows nearly all of St. Petersburg because she has matched them, married them, brokered relations for the majority of them. Domna Platonovna, the heroine, serves all sectors of society from rich to poor with equal rapidity and efficiency. From the narrative's onset, Leskov endears his heroine to the reader through her inventive use of language and sharp sense of humor. Amishanka, the petite bourgeoisie from the Metzinsk provinces, Domna Platonovna is about 45 years of age. She's brought about the waist with an enormous bosom hardly imaginable. <laughs> Written shortly after Lady Macbeth of there, you know, I had to have at least one reference of that. Written shortly after Lady Macbeth of Matins district, the second story was to be part of a broader cycle that Leskov never completed. But Domna Platonovna has none of the murderous passion that besieges Katerina uh, Lvovna, uh, Leskov's Lady Macbeth. She's an endless charmer with a sweetly delicate face, and she immediately befriends herself to the story's narrator, a fellow native of Matins province. While officially she barters lace, in reality, her work extends to the bartering of sex. As the narrator recounts, Domna Platonovna Svatala, Priskovala Zhenikov Nivestam, Nivest Zheniham, Nahadila Pakupshikov Namibel, Nadjovane Damske Platia, Adiskovala Dingi Pod Zakladi i Bezakladov, Stavala Lude Namestav Kupna, Adgovinerskih, Dvarnichiskih i Lakiskih, 
zanesila zapisečki v sami izvjesni saloni budvari, kuda gradskaj počte i pa dumani sme prakinu. So she's finding husbands for women, brides for men, buyers for furniture and women's clothing, and so forth. And she tries to mask her country origins by adopting the language of the capital's upper classes, but she does so at her own disservice, because the end result is this rich tapestry of personalized jargon and grand circumlocutions that are quite hilarious. Leskov shows here his mastery of scaws, that technique of relying, relaying individualized speech patterns and narrative. Domna Platonovna had a very polite way of speaking, recounts the narrator. She would never come out and say a woman was pregnant, for example. Rather, she's in a maritally interesting condition. The aesthetic value of her speech is part of the overall artistry that she sees in her craft of matching people, selling lace, or selling sex. By focusing on the go-between as a connoisseur in this regard, Leskov offers a compelling portrait of the indomitable Domna Platonovna. Now, the text is not part of the 19th century uh, established literary canon, so I need to give like a brief synopsis to help explain how it subverts many of the standard tropes associated with go-betweens. But in, I'll just say this in, in, in the interest of time. Uh, the first half of Leskov's novella, which I highly recommend, and it's been translated into English quite nicely, focuses on Domna Platonina's dealings with a woman of Polish descent named Lichanida. She turned Lichanida, uh, turns to Domna Platonina for help because she's left her husband to run away with an actor. Domna Platonina comes up with an easy rescue plan. She's going to uh, situate uh, Hanida uh, and uh, uh, help her find a sexual uh, partner uh, for hire. But Lihanida, who's been born and bred on bucolic ideals of love, finds such quid pro quo arrangements contrary to her moral code, and so she quickly says no. Domna Platonovna says that this is silly. She says, you didn't mind living in sin for months on end with your actor, but when it comes to business, when your own peace of mind is at stake, when the only chance of turning your life around is on the line, you won't take the one step necessary to make it happen. End of quote. When Lekanida eventually consents to allow, okay, this one-time tryst with the general, Domna Platonovna is relieved. But when she learns that Lekanida refused to open the door to the general who's come a knocking, uh, her patience is at an end. So she locks the Khadinda back in the apartment, gives the general the key, you know, considers the job well done. Domna Platonovna returns and she finds the Khadinda brooding angrily after this tryst. And she wants nothing more to do with Domna Platonovna and she leaves to become the general's mistress. Now, reading this in the wake of, we, of you know, Me Too, of course, we, we see Domna Platonovna Platonovna also is an exploitator here in this, in this, in this instance. But any, any kind of urge on our part to see, see her as an exploitator is kind of underscored or subverted by the way that Lihanida herself is problematic. She's earning 10 rubles from an elderly Greek man every week who knows no better than to dish out money to pretty ladies who come a-calling. So Domna Platonovna says, where's the, you know, where's, there's no problem there, but you won't, for your own benefit, trade sex in this one instance. Now the second half of the novel steps back and we have a series of anecdotes about the strange, even fantastic misadventures that befall Domna Platonovna in St. Petersburg. A man, for example, steals her purse, replaces it with dirty underwear, a beautiful negligee she buys from a dealer turns out to be a rag, a man she tries to match with a wife turns out to be married with three children, etc. So here Liskov again is working in the scars to, to kind of show his like literary fireworks. And the anecdotes serve as a kind of segue to the final pages of the novel. 
where we find Donna Platonovna impoverished and sickly. So she's kind of come up and, you know, she's now at her, at her end of her life cycle. And at the end of the battle axe, Domna Platonovna, who is now in her late 40s, haha, that's the end of a life, um, <laughs> has fallen madly in love with a man half her age who takes her for all she's worth. She sold everything that she can in order to try to get him out of prison. Now, this neat and affecting end where the picaresque kind of heroine gets her comeuppance has read to scholars like Hugh McLean as cliche. It's dictated, quote, more by the laws of conventional morality than by those of psychology or art, end of quote. While McLean is justified in his critique that the second half of Leskov's tale pales in comparison to the first, there's more here to the genuine than meets the eye. So by dismissing the second half of the novella as scholars have done previously, we've overlooked the conceptualization of commercial sex in St. Petersburg. What's happening is focusing on St. Petersburg's circumstances. It's a playful reworking of the phantasmagorical space of St. Petersburg where people are not what they appear to be. This theme, I argue, links the battle acts to Gogol's Petersburg text, particularly Nevsky Prospect. And by placing her in the center of Petersburg phantasmagorical space, Leskov is humanizing her follies. However, he's careful to show her contradictory nature, for she's both cruel and kind, she's ruthless and compassionate, and that binary kind of element also reflects the city's under, underlying um, uh, ethos. She might feel moments of pity and shame, but her pragmatism prevails over any urge to feel guilt over her actions. So when we think about this text and the context of what we know, the formal heroine of the story's opening falls victim to the same lovesickness that she cynically dismisses in Lihanida. Leskov allows the reader to both laugh at Domna Platonovna's comeuppance while also seeing her in a more humanistic light. So to kind of summarize, Leskov adopts many of the tropes of the Procurus in his portrait, only to subvert them through ironic treatment of transactional relations in the context of St. Petersburg. With the exception of Leskov's portrait of Domna Platonovna, the vast majority of representations um, the vast majority of representations of Madame's and go-betweens link such women's presence to a broader threat besieging the urban centers of Russia. As the demand for commercial sex increased with the growth of metropolises, the Madame's profession became increasingly important to sustaining the brothel trade and the services that prostitutes provided. Looking at the issue from an economic perspective, the representation of Madame speaks to a frustration with women who managed despite their reproductive irrelevance, to gain cultural importance in their role as go-between. Artistic and literary depictions place the go-between at the center of the debate on prostitution. Subverting the traditional maternal ideal, the intermediary appears in the cultural imagination as evocative of the hag of folklore or her double, the evil stepmother. In ways similar to these archetypes, the go-between figures as a conniving older woman who tricks helpless young maidens and metaphorically feeds on the beauty of others. And the cultural sphere, Madame's garnered suspicion because they subverted the traditional assumptions of womanhood. And the types of behaviors that they deployed, bargaining exchange rates, negotiating contracts, allocating profits, issuing bribes, navigating regulation, required a cutthroat business acumen typically associated with male industrialists. That women might take on these qualities and find financial stability proved quite worrisome for 19th century intelligentsia. However, by separating the fictional representation from the historical realities, as this presentation has done, we can see that the broad condemnation of go-betweens rested on general distrust of transactional sex and the Madame and Procurus' role in facilitating it. Thank you.